The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Meditation doesn't have to be a solo practice. Meditation is more fun with friends. Looking for a way to drop in and hang out at the same time? Join us online at Omega Institute for a meditation party with self-proclaimed meditation nerds Dan Harris, host of the 10% Happier podcast, Sabene Selassie and Jeff Warren. This three-day retreat will stream live from Omega's Hudson Valley Campus, May 17th to 19th. Don't miss the party. Reserve your spot at eomega.org slash party today. Welcome to Dropping In from Omega Institute, a podcast that explores the many ways to awaken the best in the human spirit. I'm Callie Alpert. Dropping in today, Dr. Eric Laux. Eric is Associate Professor of Epidemiology, Behavioral and Social Sciences, and Medicine, as well as Director of the Mindfulness Center at Brown University. He is also the author of The Mindful College Student, How to Succeed, Boost Well-Being, and Build the Life You Want. Eric focuses his research on the impacts of mindfulness and early life adversity on adulthood well-being. He has studied mindfulness meditation for over two decades and is a certified mindfulness-based stress reduction instructor. He has over 100 peer-reviewed publications and has received wide coverage of his research findings in outlets such as the New York Times and BBC News. I'm happy to say that Eric has also created a self-paced online course with Omega titled The Mindful College Student, Finding Your Path to a Thriving Life, which can be found on Omega's website. There, Eric sets the framework for finding ways to understand the unique challenges college students face and how mindfulness-based skills can mitigate stress, cultivate well-being, and create a strong foundation for the future. Welcome, Eric. Thank you for dropping in today. So good to see you and hear you. Yeah, you too, really. It's a, it's a great pleasure to be here. So thanks for hosting me. It is our great pleasure. So I want to start with a, a nice, simple question, and I say that with a smile. What is mindfulness, and why is it so crucial to adopt it? Yeah, it's a great it's a great question with no one answer. And uh, it's been interesting to be in the room with world experts trying to come to a consensus definition of mindfulness and seeing not so much consensus happening. And mm. uh, yeah, it's something that we can point to. And, you know, one of the most common definitions of mindfulness is that it's uh, paying attention on purpose, non-judgmentally, which is one that was offered by John Kabat-Zinn. And uh has had a lot of traction. I often define it as uh, present moment awareness of our thoughts, our emotions, and our physical sensations. So there's that present moment element of just being aware of our entire experience. But then there's the quality of that attention, that it's non-judgmental. It's got curiosity, gentleness, kindness. And um, you know, another piece that I'm really appreciating that has come through in some of the um, uh, ancient um, languages that uh, Buddhism was first written down in, like in Pali and Sanskrit, um, is there's an element of remembering uh, mm. to mindfulness. And for a long time, I was like, "What do you mean remembering? Like that? That's thinking about the past. Why would why would that make sense?" 
And then I was reading this one um, uh, story where it was talked about how mindfulness, it's, it's almost like an arrow uh, that it's, that flies fast. And what it's doing is it's bringing our wisdom into this present moment. So we're remembering to bring our wisdom that we've gained over our lifetimes, wherever we got it from, and we're bringing it here to this moment. And that's something that I've really been using a lot in my teaching now. I love the idea of remembering our wisdom, the collective wisdom that we might not even be conscious of. Yeah. Why do you think it's so easy for us to not remember that? Like that, you know, the, the idea that we have to summon it up, that it's not our reflexive sort of MO every day. Yeah, it's a good question. You know, I sometimes wonder if it's just a fundamental human genetic thing, you know, like the reason each of us are on the earth right now is because of all our ancestors that stayed alive and created more offspring and what it takes to stay alive and create more offspring isn't always bringing our wisdom into this present moment yet we all have that capacity and so part of meditation training is to train that capacity so we're training ourselves in what we call like attention control like how to place our mind where we choose to place it and by doing that we start to get better at doing that and also we're training ourselves in self-awareness so if we're training ourselves to really be aware of our wisdom and bring it to this moment that we can do through a meditation practice focused on that then that can potentially lead us to a healthier and happy life it may not change you know how many offspring we have for example that would like get to the next generation or mm -hmm. help us may help us stay alive i mean i've had moments when it has uh, personally but um but it certainly seems to be able to have the capacity to bring happiness and well-being and even potentially enhance our performance in the areas that we really want to excel in in our lives Given that most of your research and, and so much of your attention, and especially at Brown University and your writings, is geared around young adulthood, what would you say are some of the biggest ills that are facing our young adults and college students these days? Because the list is so long, it must be hard to even prioritize in your work. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's a tricky time. It's a tricky time to be a young adult. You know, when I was writing the book, I interviewed about two dozen young adults that had either gone through my programs or had had really solid mindfulness practices themselves, along with the hundreds of young adults that have gone through my programs and then the data that I look at too. You know, there's, there's a few things that really came up, uh, especially in the interviews. One was around, you know, mm -hmm. their relationship with digital media and screens and, and how to work with that, whether it's the, the craving to engage or, you know, I had one young adult uh, who talked about how she had developed, um, you know, an eating disorder and some body image challenges. And she's, she shared that just about all of her friends had too. And that because of her looking at, you know, different kinds of apps with showing different images of women, she just felt like what she should look like was actually unhealthy, but she had the desire to look like that on screen. And so she moved towards it. And so I'm finding that there's a lot of um, 
opportunity actually for mindfulness to help use digital media just as a tool, you know, just like humans have used tools over time. So let's use it for the things that really help life be better and notice maybe when there's a hook in it that we're getting caught in and to see if we can let it go when that's the case. And um, so that's one that came up a lot. Um, another one has been around like finances, you know, that mm -hmm. cost of college has been outpacing inflation for decades. And uh, the cost of housing has also really been going up. And then there's also more kind of job insecurity where these kind of gig, the gig economy and stuff and more kind of fluidity and so hearing a lot of stress from young adults about how to set themselves up uh, and to not have too much debt and, and to be able to establish their lives um, and the stress kind of around trying to figure that out. And a number of young adults talked about how they'd use mindfulness to, to really find a really healthy career path and to notice um, how they feel when they spend their money on certain things or where they make different choices that have economic impacts. And, um, so, so those are two, two big ones. Uh, you know, we've seen anxiety and depression levels increasing in young adults for three or four decades now. And just even fairly recently, stress levels in adolescents for the first time in history were higher than adults in the United States. And so, um, COVID or not, you know, COVID's, of course, just magnified so much. That's another one that really comes up a lot. And these trends have been happening before COVID came too. As I'm listening to you giving some examples of some of the greater challenges facing young adults and, and adults and people of all ages, really, right? It makes me wonder, it's sort of a chicken or egg thing. Um, you know, is it our human predisposition to respond to the world and the byproduct being things like anxiety and depression? Or is it that the outside world is becoming harder? And so as a collective, based on how we're made biologically, psychologically, that it's inevitable that we're going to have more, like the, the statistics that you cite are going to get higher. Mm -hmm. Yeah. In some ways, it's an amazing time to be alive. Like, yeah we're living twice as long now as we were just a hundred years ago, like twice as long. So I don't think of that with young adults or me, like if I'm making a right mess of my life right now, well, I've got like twice as long to recover <laughs> before I die than, you know, a hundred years ago. <laughs> That's one way to look at it. Yeah. Um, and so there's these kind of amazing things that I often feel like it's good to remember too, and to kind of savor what in the world has, has, really develop, you know, some, so many fewer people are in poverty now than, than used to be. And, um, and, you know, there's certain things that we know improve well-being that were almost like a given up until the last hundred years. Mm. So some of those things are like pretty healthy foods, like eating good numbers of like fruits and vegetables. Cause up until processed food and stuff, like that was kind of what was available or like regular physical activity, you know, up until a hundred years ago or so, there was so much more, you know, cars just came out like a hundred years ago, <laughs> you know, or maybe, maybe a little more than a hundred, but still, you know, so how sedentary we are now. And also 
including with COVID, but also with the work from anywhere movement and stuff, there's a lot of loneliness now. There's a lot less interpersonal communication in a, in a kind of like, I mean, there's tons of zoom meetings. <laughs> there's no lack of that in a lot of our worlds. Um, but that kind of meaningful connection is lesser. And all three of those are really good for well-being. And we're in this time in history where, you know, a lot of our jobs are pretty sedentary and a lot of our pastimes are too. And food, processed food is inexpensive and it's tasty and it's not always so easy to have the time to cook the vegetables and fruits and especially in college, you know, especially in college, or when you're starting yeah. out your life as a young adult, right? Yeah. Yeah. And college is one of the, it's funny, but it's one of the lonelier times in life for many people because they've left, left their families. They often don't have a long-term, uh, you know, romantic relationship yet. Don't have kids. They can certainly have friends, but there's a lot of time alone in college and as a ad young adult too. So it's the second loneliest time in life, that and end of life. Um, so it's just, it's what we're working with right now. But part of mindfulness is to just see clearly. And so that is what we're working with right now in society. So if we're experiencing, you know, obesity or craving for salty, sweet items, or we're feeling lonely, or we're kind of out of shape, it's not all our fault. You know, in fact, it's not really our fault. Like it's sort of the structures of society right now. So if you were feeling that you're in good company and with mindfulness, can we see that, notice it, and then ask, well, what's a wise response in this moment to the world that we live in right now? And that's part of what this course that I developed at Omega, uh, as well as the book helps lead uh, young adults through. We should also note here, though, um, while we're focusing certainly again on your expertise and the young adulthood demographic um, that's that's spoken to, especially in the the book and the Omega program, that what we're talking about during this conversation today really applies to everybody: the parents of these children, the relatives, the grandparents, the neighbors. Right? Something that is much yeah. more universal. Yeah, yeah. The course in the book, you know, it is universal, so. It is for everyone, but the stories are are mostly focused on on young adults. Uh, in many ways, it's kind of peers teaching each other, uh, um, and a lot of the research is focused in young adults. But that said, the course is about you know really connecting in with our body and our heart and our mind, and applying it to day to day life. That no matter what age we are. It applies. So before we start breaking down some of the, um, the specifics that are in your book and your general teachings, I'd love to hear you speak to how someone comes to mindfulness. Often people look for a practice or a therapist or whatever when they're in a place of crisis or difficulty or challenge, right? Mm -hmm. What do you say to people? I've heard this so often. I'm sure you have too. Oh, I don't have the time to meditate. I don't have the time to be mindful. I'm too restless. I, my attention span's too short which we know is precisely the reason that people like that can benefit. But what do you say to people that are having a hard time crossing the line to even commit themselves to adopt a practice? Yeah. Yeah. You know, for me, I, 
I am a big fan of like the opt-in approach to mindfulness. So for people to see if it resonates with them or if they're curious about it. And if they are, there's lots of ways in right now. And if they're not, there's many ways to health and happiness and meditation is just one and it may not be right for everyone. And uh, so I, I really try not, not to push anyone into it, but if they're curious and say they're having trouble finding the time to meditate, it's, it's an opportunity to explore it. You know, like um, uh, Pema Chodron, for example, who's a really wise um, nun um, who lives up in Eastern Canada. I remember in one of her books, she talked about how, at least in her experience, meditation actually makes time rather than takes time. And that's certainly been my experience too. So uh, if I start my day with, with meditation, I just find I'm more grounded and I'm also more aware of what's the most important thing to do. So that say in the past, like I remember when I was you know, a, a, a junior faculty member at McGill University, that's where my first faculty position was. And, uh, and I had some really important emails to go out that were emotionally challenging for me because I'd gotten this big grant, federal grant, and I was really trying to get a big project moving with some very famous people. And I was kind of this young guy, like just out of school. And I'm like, okay, I'll go get a cup of coffee. And then I'll come back and I'll write that email. And so I'd go and get that cup of coffee, which would actually get my nerves a little more jittery. <laughs> and then I'd sit back in front of my computer and be like, mm, tomorrow, I'll definitely send it tomorrow. <laughs> and now when I meditate more, I can notice the challenging emotions come up and care for them. And, uh, also notice, say that coffee makes me jittery, so I don't drink coffee much anymore. Mm -hmm. And then do what is most important that my wisdom is telling me. And that actually creates time because I'm doing the most important things. Uh, and so I'm spending less time spinning out, you know, ruminating on stuff or running around getting a cup of coffee that I didn't actually need in the first place. <laughs> and that's where the time can get created. So let's talk, let's take a little more deeply then into the idea of the sort of the mental narratives or the mind streams, as we can sometimes call them. Can you speak to, first of all, define what that is, you know, the, the mind stream or when we get caught in the web of our thoughts, whatever language you use, I'd love mm -hmm. to hear more about. And then we can dig a little deeper into what we do with that. Yeah, sure. Yeah, I mean, I would say at least like with mindfulness-based stress reduction uh, that was developed by John Kabat-Zinn that we... Um, teach at Brown University and have a teacher training program at Brown University for people that want to get certified in teaching it. So one of the things that they talk about is, is we're training ourselves to be aware of our physical sensations, our emotions, and our thoughts. And in many ways, that's the entirety of the human experience. And so these thought narratives, maybe that you're, if I understand what you're sharing about, that's like kind of like the thought domain, right? Mm -hmm. And so, so with meditation, you know, we're training ourselves to just observe the thoughts, almost like we're sitting on the bank of a river and there's like maybe a twig floating on the river going by and we're just watching the twig go by and maybe it gets caught in a whirlpool or a little rivulet or whatever it is. 
So can we sit back and just watch our thoughts go by, just knowing it's good information and that we don't necessarily have to act on our thoughts. And so for many of us, when we have thoughts, it's just like, yeah, I got to do that. You know, like, it's just, it's just like part of us and we're, and what meditation is training us to do is what they call like decentering or taking that step back so that now we're just starting to observe our thoughts that we don't necessarily have to act on. We can, if it seems wise to act on them. And we can also know they're just, they're just thoughts. And we also just let them travel by unless we feel like it's important to, to act on them. So that's sort of how I conceptualize um, that sort of thing. I love that visual, the twig in the river. It's a really yeah. good kind of um, palpable one to, to, create a visual for what meditation or mindfulness can do for somebody to that point when you describe the idea of creating a little bit of space or a little bit more um witnessing is a word that's used a lot right yeah Yeah. in the Mm -hmm. in the mindfulness um community or meditation community can you speak to just the um the idea that we are not our thoughts and how important it is to to recognize that that there is, that there can be a separation because i think um a lot of people don't even know that that, that that's a concept yeah you know like i kind of think of it as um, the way our bodies are set up they have channels for information to help us better understand reality so some of the channels are the senses like the sense of sight or hearing or smell or touch and then we also have um, the sensations of the emotions, you know, that what emotion is here, even, you know, for the podcast listener now, you know, what emotion are you feeling right now? And taking that moment and that's, you know, and, uh, and observing it with kindness, you know, whatever it is. And so that's actually helpful information about how and who we are in this moment. And same with the thoughts, you know, so what thoughts are here, even for the listeners right now, what thought is in your mind right now? And whatever it is, it's unique to everyone in the world. This is your thought. And is it a common thought that you have quite a bit or is it fresh and new? And so through this process, in so many ways, that's the entirety of the human experience that is helping us better understand reality and how to respond to reality. So that when thoughts come in, they're just one of the bits of data coming in along with our emotions and along with our sensations. And then the brain is kind of amazing of making a story up that makes sense of all those channels. And it's almost always at least a little bit wrong. (laughs) Just a little bit. Yeah, (laughs) sometimes more than others. (laughs) And so then there's, I think that helps with some humbleness and also some like, you know, not taking life or things quite so seriously, knowing they're just thoughts, you know, it's just my perception. And it's, it's partially right for sure. And it's partially wrong for sure. And it's okay. My brain's just doing the best it can. We're all doing the best we can. I think that's, thank you for that. I think it's so important just to point that out. And Mm -hmm. you did that so eloquently, just the idea. I, I wish I had these tools when I was, approaching, you know, late teens, early 20s, because it felt very yeah. melodramatic. Mm-hmm. And, um, and legitimately, there is a lot going on, as you, you know, you spoke to earlier. So it's a very, there's a there is a lot of gravity at that chapter in life. And yeah. I think our minds can do a really good job of exacerbating it unnecessarily. And so um, I just think it's mm-hmm. such a great, 
concept just to introduce to people, no matter where they are in their practice or, or just considering one, that there's a, set, there's a place to separate. There's space between our minds and our essence. Yeah. So your book, The Mindful College Student, is um, it's a nice combination because it's very applicable. You've got personal stories, you've got science, you've got wisdom offerings, you've got practices. Yeah. I, I mean, I think the book's almost like designed like we're building a house and we start with the foundation. And the foundation in many ways is the body. And there's good evidence over decades around there's certain fundamental things that we can do with the body to help support the mind and the emotions and to live the life of our dreams. And so the first part of the book is starting to connect in with our body itself, just in a non-judgmental, curious way to see what signals are here. And we do it in different ways, whether it's through you know, a body scan meditation where we're not moving or we do it where we are moving, you know, with maybe some yoga opportunities or some mindful physical activity and start to explore into our relationship with diet and sleep. And uh, so some of the fundamental things that create like a really healthy, healthy body. Um, and so in many ways, you know, this, that first chapter that's called opening the body is is seeing if our body is open. Like in other words, does it feel healthy and free? And if not, why not? And so like, say this morning, I went for a swim um, and ate like a really healthy breakfast. So my body's like feeling like it's burning clean right now. So how does that then, um, if you start with the foundation of focusing on our body and our um, physical health, how does that springboard into the idea of the health and wisdom of our hearts? Yeah. Yeah. It was interesting. As, a, as I was writing the book, it started to take this shape uh, that matches um, a lot of ancient teachings uh, from Buddhism. So one is on the four establishments of mindfulness and the other is on this, the sutra of breathing awareness. And those actually have this sequence where you start with the body and bring awareness to it and care for it. And then you shift to the emotions or to the heart and bring awareness to it and care for it and then shift to the awareness of like the thoughts or consciousness and care for them and then shift to sort of like the spirit or, or more kind of advanced um, kind of Buddhist teachings on how everything's interconnected and everything changes, that kind of thing. So I kind of followed up a path that people have been following with success for thousands of years. And so even with yoga, you know, it's often been done to help prepare ourselves for a really solid meditation so that if we can care for the body, even in those moments, just be like, oh, I might need a little bit of exercise or I might need to eat something healthy. Then we can be with the emotions in an even stronger way because the body influences the emotions quite a bit. And they found impacts of physical activity on emotions, diet on emotions. So, so that becomes the next way in to really start to connect in with the emotions if we're setting that strong foundation in the body. Uh, so that's sort of the way, the reason for um, connecting in in that particular order. I'm curious about these themes and why they resonate with you and where the early beginnings were for you as a young, you know, a, a kid or a young adult. Did you have issues then that sort of prompted you to become an expert in all of these different practices? Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, in so many ways, I I too wish I had this book when I was young. Yeah. And I did have some teachers that I was super grateful for. And uh, and one of the reasons I wrote this book was because young adults were asking me to ask me to teach this stuff at Brown and develop these programs and, and then this book too. You know, I think the one of my ways in to mindfulness and I think was racing in triathlons. Uh, so that's where uh, we have to monitor the body and the mind over quite an extended period of time mm -hmm. to keep it at optimal performance. So that not going too fast, that's kicking in like the anaerobic kind of zone and also not going too slow. And, and so I did a lot of monitoring of my body during training and in races that improve my performance and uh and then you know my my mom um had a second cousin who um did some peace work in uh northern india and ended up marrying a tibetan um named tc tathong who became the uh foreign affairs minister for the dalai lama when i was young oh, wow. and so i started to hear about the dalai lama just through family stuff and uh and then started reading some of his books and just it felt like a good fit for me and then as a you know as I went to college I kind of undergrad college I, I was just I wasn't too concerned about <laughs> spirituality and all that kind of stuff and then as I got older I was like wow all these people I really respect in the world had a pretty strong contemplative practice whether it was Gandhi or Martin Luther King or Mother Teresa or you know, others. And, and so I was like, there's probably something to it. And so I started to like really deliberately explore different contemplative practices and landed on, you know, meditation and mindfulness and Buddhist practices. Uh, and um, particularly with uh, the teacher Thich Nhat Hanh. Uh, um, and he had a very strong community and he's also like not trying to convert anyone into Buddhism either, uh, which I really appreciated. And it, it kind of like fit well with kind of my scientific perspectives and stuff where it's just like, try it on for size. If it works great, if not, it's okay too. Uh, so it started to just help me become healthier and happier and just have tools to navigate life uh, as you know, I'm definitely far from perfect, but if I didn't have these tools, I'd be even farther from perfect. So <laughs> it's been helpful that way. I'm interested in um, what, how you just characterize sort of your mind as a, a science-oriented person, which is typically living in the left side of our brains, mm -hmm. and mindfulness and meditation, which tends to be more of a heart-based or right-brain-centered practice mm. and modality. Did you ever yeah. struggle with that reconciliation along the way in your own practice? Yeah, it's a good question. I don't think I'm, uh, I don't know if it really matters. Like I'm pretty ambidextrous. Like I feel pretty, like I've got access to both sides. Like um, I could show, I have some, I'm, I got my daughter some calligraphy. It's on my Instagram account if you want to check it out. But I got them these calligraphy materials like Asian um, brush painting. And we've been doing quite a bit of art together in that regard too, like contemplative art. And, uh, but I've always loved science and I've loved, no, I love like my undergrad is in physiology. So I love knowing how the body works. 
uh, and you know, I was influenced by Leonardo da Vinci and people who just, you know, my, one of my grandfathers in particular really, um, appreciated the arts and music and, and for a career, I chose science, you know, cause it's, you know, makes a good paycheck and, <laughs> and helps me contribute to society in ways that I enjoy. Mm-hmm. And so I've chosen that, but I still play mandolin you know, do some art, not a lot, love pottery. So I have had both in my life and actually value having both in my life. I feel like it makes me a kind of a richer, fuller person and also helps me relate to more people Mm. because wherever people land on that spectrum, I I usually have usually pretty interested in it Mm because I have those elements. I think all of us probably have those elements in us, but some maybe more in one direction than the other. It's so interesting that these ancient wisdom traditions, as I know you've studied a lot, um, and practices like meditation and mindfulness are thousands and thousands of years old. And yet, in Western culture, it seems that the kind of work that you do on the research and science side helps to validate it and disseminate it to the masses Mm -hmm. and maybe mainstream it, for lack of a better word, a little bit more successfully. Would you say Mm -hmm. that that's true? Yeah, I think the... um, People buy it a little bit more if they know. mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. And for me, I am pretty fundamentally a scientist. So I I appreciate the science to help inform my understanding of mindfulness and meditation too. So... And that's very consistent with with Buddhist underpinnings of this work as well, where it's like, you know, it's tested out in ourselves and see. And so even the mindfulness approach is very scientific. You know, for us, it's often a sample size of one, you know, like a study, because it's just us experimenting on ourselves. Exactly. But in science, you know, one of the new methods is what they call N of one trials, where we take individuals and we give them lots of different interventions over time. And you allow a little bit of a washout period in between. And over time, that starts to see the truth about what what works. And um, so, yeah, we just have a sample size of one. But every morning we wake up and we can try eating. You know, right now my wife and I are, are playing around with really cutting out grain and dairy and really upping the vegetables. And... Uh, so I've been doing that for two days. And <laughs> how's that how's that going? Yeah. Yesterday morning I was I was grumpy. Um, <laughs> and then by yesterday afternoon I was feeling better. And today I'm feeling better. I think I have a bit of gluten intolerance and a bit of dairy intolerance, and so does she. So so there's an experiment I can run on myself and run it. And then at some point, you know, like last weekend my daughter made um just a, a beautiful uh, chocolate cake for Valentine's Day. And so, and for me, and sh- I, I have a complicated relationship with sugar where it's quite addictive for me mm-hmm. and it makes me quite grumpy, though I love the taste. So, you know, your 11-year-old daughter makes a cake like for Valentine's Day. How can I say no? <laughs> uh, what loving dad can refuse that? Yeah. So, you know, 
I eat the cake, but then I eat another piece of cake and then I eat another piece of cake. <laughs> I think I had four pieces of cake that day. And so there's an experiment I ran on myself of, okay, how does it go when I have one piece of cake? Oh, it makes craving for another piece of cake and another piece of cake. And it's life, you know, like, so the next day I just tried to be kind to myself, not judge myself for having pigged out on cake <laughs> and didn't have any cake the next day and moved on with my life. <laughs> so <laughs> it's sort of these experiments we can run as scientists on ourselves to just see, you know, with mindfulness and meditation, it's present moment awareness of our thoughts, emotions, physical sensations. So how do we feel when we eat different things? How do we feel when we're physically active in different ways? And that's a big part of the course with Omega, as well as the book, uh, to actually train ourselves to, to do that kind of work and to create the scaffolding that's a safe, courageous place to explore that within ourselves, too. Well, I thank you for the confessional. Yeah, sure. I think yeah, it's really, yeah. we like uh -huh. to have confessionals here and dropping yeah, in. But actually, good. it is, you know, and, um, the, the piece that's so important um, that, you, that you shared coming out of that, because even the ex, you know, even an expert, even, even somebody such as yourself, you know, we all have our vices and our days where we take our dips or our reflexes, get the best of us. And then the next day, yeah. the forgiveness piece and the being gentle piece is so important. Yeah. Versus the shaming and the beating yourself up and the things that we're so often inclined to do. So I'm glad you shared that. Thank you yeah. for that. Sure. Yeah. They say sometimes the best guides are just like a little ahead on the river so they can point out the rocks. And <laughs> sometimes I, I feel like that, you know, my, my daughter, one, I have two daughters, twin daughters, um, but one of them um, uh, is a, just a really good climber and she's doing rock climbing a lot right now. And, um, and she was climbing trees starting at the age of two and I'd have to hold onto her ankle so she didn't go too high. Um, but one of the things I just, I trust her so much with her climbing because she, she doesn't fall much, but when she does, she falls really well. She's very loose and she rolls. And, um, and I feel like that inspires me that when I, you know, have too much sugar or too much coffee or whatever that, can I just fall well? Because mm -hmm. we all fall. I don't know anyone who doesn't, honestly. I feel like sometimes like gurus and teachers try to create this like aura of perfection. But when I get to know them and I know a decent number, you know, I have yet to meet someone who doesn't fall sometimes. And uh, and and not to judge other teachers at all because there's just incredible teachers in this world. Uh, and but I think it's actually a benefit to share how we fall because we all do. And can we fall well, learn what causes us to fall, really let it sink in and then bring our wisdom into this moment about what's that skillful next step. And often it's without judgment and with kindness and curiosity. So finally, I'd like to ask you these three questions that I like to ask every guest on dropping in. It's kind of our rapid fire signature round. So okay. um, the first one is, I'd like to grant you one wish for our listeners. What would it be? Hmm. I think health and happiness for all our listeners. And uh, it's certainly two big drivers of my life and something that I hope for for all beings. What is something you wish for yourself? 
Uh, hmm. Well, the same with maybe uh, more ease as well. And finally, what is the most important offering that you would like our listeners to take away from our conversation today? Hmm. When you say offering, like an offering that I have provided to them or... Something that's come up in our conversation today that you really want them to grasp and like take away. If there's, you know, if there's one, one thing yeah. you offered a plethora of really important things, but I'm just wondering if there's yeah. one takeaway that stands out. Yeah. I think trust your wisdom that so much of our lives, we've been exposed to a lot of wisdom and really trusting that and bringing it into this moment. So I want to thank you so much for your time today. It's yeah. been a pleasure talking with you. Yeah, and I'd like to ask you if our listeners would like to learn more about you, your new book, any of your new endeavors, the Omega program, we know we can find on the website. Where would you like them to yeah. find you? Yeah. I mean, we just launched a, a website, ericlauxphd.com. Uh, so that's sort of a clearinghouse where we have free meditations and free videos and info on what's what's going on these days so that's maybe the easiest one-stop shop um but you can also check out the omega site for the course that's being launched and the books on most major platforms if you just uh google it or at lots of local bookstores too but thanks thanks for hosting me it's a real pleasure to have this conversation with you it's kind of neat that it's recorded but even if it wasn't recorded i would have enjoyed this conversation with you too so thanks for hosting me thank you so much Thanks for dropping in with Omega Institute. If you like what you hear, tell your friends and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps New Year's find us. Dropping in is made possible in part by the support of Omega members. To learn more, visit eomega.org slash membership. And check out our many online learning opportunities featuring your favorite teachers and thought leaders at eomega.org slash online learning. I'm Callie Alpert, producer and host of Dropping In. The music and mix are by Scott Mueller. Thanks for dropping in. Are you ready to ignite your best life and illuminate the world? I'm Stephanie James. I'm a motivational speaker, transformation coach, and psychotherapist. And what lights me up is helping people just like you create the greatest versions of themselves. On my podcast, Igniting the Spark, I will help you ignite your joy and reach new heights in your personal and professional life. Join me for some incredible conversations with authors, spiritual teachers, and other influential thought leaders to help guide you on your way. If you are ready to stop playing small, join me for Igniting the Spark on the mindbodyspirit.fm network or wherever you get your podcasts and ignite your best life.